0: Part One of Part Seventh of Trilby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Estelle Jobson. Trilby by George de Maurier. Part Seventh, Part One. The moon made thy lips pale, beloved. The wind made thy bosom chill. The night did shed on thy dear head its frozen dew and thou didst lie where the bitter breath of the naked sky might visit thee at will." Next morning our three friends lay late abed, and breakfasted in their rooms. They had all three passed white nights, even the laird, who had tossed about and pressed his sleepless pillow till dawn, so excited had he been by the wonder of Trilby's reincarnation, so perplexed by his own doubts as to whether it was really Trilby or not and certain haunting tones of her voice, that voice so cruelly sweet, which clove the stillness with a clang so utterly new, so strangely heart-piercing and seductive, that the desire to hear it once more became nostalgic, almost an ache, certain bits and bars and phrases of the music she had sung, unspeakable felicities and facilities of execution, sudden exotic warmths, fragrances, tendernesses, graces, depths and breaths, Quick changes from grave to gay, from rough to smooth, from great metallic brazen clangors to soft golden suavities, all the varied modes of sound we try so vainly to borrow from vocal nature by means of wind and reed and string. All this new trilbiness kept echoing in his brain all night, for he was of a nature deeply musical, and sleep had been impossible to him. AS WHEN WE DWELL UPON A WORD WE KNOW, REPEATING TILL THE WORD WE KNOW SO WELL BECOMES A WONDER, AND WE KNOW NOT WHY. SO DWELT THE laird UPON THE POOR OLD TUNE, BEN BOLT, WHICH KEPT SINGING ITSELF OVER AND OVER AGAIN IN HIS TIRED CONSCIOUSNESS, AND MADDENED HIM WITH NOVEL, STRANGE, unhackneyed, UNSUSPECTED BEAUTIES, SUCH AS HE HAD NEVER DREAMED OF IN ANY EARTHLY MUSIC. IT HAD BECOME A WONDER, AND HE KNEW NOT WHY. They spent what was left of the morning at the Louvre, and tried to interest themselves in the marriage of Cana, and the woman at the well, and Van Dyck's man with the glove, and the little princess of Velasquez, and Lisa Joconda's smile. It was of no use trying. There was no sight worth looking at in all Paris but Trilby, in her gold raiment, no other princess in the world, no smile but hers when through her parted lips came bubbling Chopin's impromptu. They had not long to stay in Paris, and they must drink of that bubbling fountain once more, Coute, que cout. They went to the Salle des bagi and found that all seats all over the house had been taken for days and weeks, and the queue at the door had already begun, and they had to give up all hopes of slaking this particular thirst. Then they went and lunched perfunctorily, and talked desultorily over lunch, and read criticisms of Las Bengali's debut in the morning papers, a chorus of journalistic acclamation gone mad, a frenzied eulogy in every key. But nothing was good enough for them. Brand new words were wanted, another language. Then they wanted a long walk, and could think of nowhere to go in all Paris, that immense Paris, where they had promised themselves to see so much that the week they were to spend there had seemed too short. Looking in a paper, they saw it announced that the band of the imperial guides would play that afternoon in the Pré-Catalan, Bois de Boulogne, and thought they might as well walk there as anywhere else, and walk back again in time to dine with the passe A prandial function which did not promise to be very amusing, but still it was something to kill the evening with, since they couldn't go and hear Trilby again. Outside the Pré-Catalan they found a crowd of cabs and carriages, saddle-horses and grooms one might have thought oneself in the height of the Paris season. They went in and strolled about here and there, and listened to the band, which was famous, it has performed in London at the Crystal Palace, and they looked about and studied life, or tried to. Suddenly they saw, sitting with three ladies, one of whom the eldest was in black, a very smart young officer, a guide, all red and green and gold, and recognised their old friend Zuzu, They bowed, and he knew them at once, and jumped up and came to them, and greeted them warmly, especially his old friend Taffy, whom he took to his mother, the lady in black, and introduced to the other ladies, the younger of whom, strangely, unlike the rest of her countrywomen, was so lamentably, so pathetically plain, that it would be brutal to attempt the cheap and easy task of describing her. It was Miss Lavinia Hunks, the famous American millineress, and her mother, then the good Zuzu came back and talked to the laird and little Billy. Zuzu, in some subtle and indescribable way, had become very ducal, indeed. He looked extremely distinguished, for one thing, in his beautiful guide's uniform, and was most gracefully and winningly polite. He inquired warmly after Mrs. and Miss Bago, and begged little Billy would recall him to their amiable remembrance when he saw them again. He expressed most sympathetically his delight to see little Billy looking so strong and so well. Little Billy looked like a pallid little washed-out ghost after his white night. They talked of Dodor. He said how attached he was to Dodor, and always should be, but Dodor, it seemed, had made a great mistake in leaving the army and going into a retail business, petit commerce. He had done for himself de gol. He should have stuck to the dragon. With a little patience and good conduct he would have won his epaulette and then one might have arranged for him a good little marriage un parti convenable for he was trés joli garçon d'odeur bonne tournure et trés gentiment né c'est trés ancien les rigolos dont le poitou je crois la farce et tout ça tout à fait bien it was difficult to realize that this polished and discreet and somewhat patronizing young man of the world was the jolly dog who had gone after Little Billy's hat on all fours in the Rue Vieille des Trois Mauvais-Ladres, and brought it back in his mouth, the cariatide. Little Billy knew that Monsieur le Duc de la roche tel d'Elboisegure had quite recently delighted a very small and select and most august imperial supper-party at Compiègne, with this very story, not blinking a single detail of his own share in it, and he had given a most touching and sympathetic description of le joli petit peintre anglais qui s'appelait Litre Billy et ne pouvait pas se tenir sur ses jambes et qui pleurait d'amour fraternel dans les bras de mon copain Dodore. Ah, Monsieur Gontran, ce que je donnerais pour avoir vu ça! Had said the greatest lady in France, un mésouave à quatre pattes dans la rue, un chapeau dans la bouche. Oh, c'est impayable. Zuzu kept these blackguard, bohemian reminiscences for the imperial circle alone, to which it was suspected that he was secretly rallying himself. Among all outsiders, especially within the narrow precincts of the cream of the noble Faubourg, which remained aloof from the Tuileries, he was a very proper and gentlemanlike person indeed, as his brother had been, and in his mother's fond belief, très bien pensant, très bien vu, à Frosdorf et à Rome. On lui aurait donné le bon Dieu sans confession, as Madame Vinard had said, of Little Billy. They would have shriven him at sight, and admitted him to the Holy Communion on trust. He did not present Little Billy and the laird to his mother, nor to Mrs. and Miss Hunks. That honour was reserved for the man of blood alone. Nor did he ask where they were staying, nor invite them to call on him. But in parting he expressed the immense pleasure it had given him to meet them again and the hope he had of some day shaking their hands in london as the friends walked back to paris together it transpired that the man of blood had been invited by madame duchesse mère maman duchesse as zuzu called her to dine with her next day and meet the hunkses at a furnished apartment she had taken in the place vendome for they had let to the hunkses the hotel de la roche martel in the rue de lille they had also been obliged to let their place in the country De chateau des bois to tu monsieur des poires Despoir, as he chose to spell himself on his visiting cards the famous soap manufacturer un très brave homme à ce qu'on dit and his only son by the way soon after married mademoiselle jeanne adelaide d'Amory brissac de Roncevaux de bois de la roche martel il ne fait pas gracher nous à présent je vous assure madame duchesse-mère had pathetically said to taffy but had given him to understand that things would be very much better for his son in the event of his marriage with Miss Hunks. "'Good heavens!' said little Billy, on hearing this. "'That grotesque little bogey in blue! Why, she's deformed!' she squints. "'She's a dwarf and looks like an idiot. Millions or no millions, the man who marries her is a felon!' as long as there are stones to break and a road to break them on, the able-bodied man who marries a woman like that for anything but pity and kindness, and even then dishonours himself, insults his ancestry, and inflicts on his descendants a wrong that nothing will ever redeem. He nips them in the bud. He blasts them for ever. He ought to be cut by his fellowmen, sent to Coventry, to jail, to penal servitude for life. He ought to have a separate hell to himself when he dies. He ought to— "'Shut up, you little blaspheming ruffian,' said the laird. "'Where do you expect to go to, yourself, with such frightful sentiments? "'And what would become of your beautiful old twelfth-century dukedoms, "'with a hundred yards of back frontage opposite the Louvre, "'on a beautiful historic river, and a dozen beautiful historic names, "'and no money if you had your way?' "'And the laird wunk his historic wink.' "'Twelfth-century dukedoms be damned,' said Tuffy, Oh, grand sérieux, as usual. Little Billy's quite right, and Zuzu makes me sick. Besides, what does she marry him for? Not for his beauty either, I guess. She's his fellow criminal, his deliberate accomplice. Parti chep's delicti. Accessory before, the act, and after. She has no right to marry at all. Tar and feathers and a rail for both of them, and for Maman Duchess too. And I suppose that's why I refused her invitation to dinner and now let's go and dine with Dodore. Anyhow, Dodore's young woman doesn't marry him for a dukedom, or even his deux, mais bien pour ses beaux yeux. And if the rigolo of the future turn out less nice to look at than their sire, and not quite so amusing, there will probably be a great improvement on him in many other ways. There's room enough, and to spare. Here, here, said little Billy, who always grew flippant when Taffy got on his high horse. "'Your health and song, sir, them's my sentiments to a tea. What shall we have the pleasure of drinking after that very nice harmony?' After which they walked on in silence, each, no doubt, musing on the general contrariness of things, and imagining what splendid little winds, or Bago, or MacAllisters might have been ushered into a decadent world for its regeneration— if fate had so willed it that a certain magnificent and singularly gifted grisette, etc., etc., etc. Mrs. and Miss Hanks passed them as they walked along in their beautiful blue barouche with sea-springs, un oui, ressort, Maman Duchesse passed them in a hired fly, Zuzu passed them on horseback, Tout Paris passed them but they were none the wiser, and agreed that the show was not a patch on that in Hyde Park during the London season. When they reached the Place de la Concorde, it was that lovely hour of a fine autumn day in beautiful bright cities, when all the lamps are lit in the shops and streets, and under the trees, and it is still daylight, a quick fleeting joy, and as a special treat on this particular occasion the sun set, and up rose the yellow moon over eastern Paris, and floated above the chimney-pots of the Tuileries. They stopped to gaze at the homeward procession of cabs and carriages, as they used to do in the old times. To Paris was still passing. To Paris is very long. They stood among a little crowd of sightseers like themselves, little Billy right in front, in the road. Presently a magnificent open carriage came by, more magnificent than even the Hunkses, with liveries and harness quite vulgarly resplendent, almost Napoleonic. Lolling back in it lay Monsieur and Madame Svengali, he with his broad-brimmed felt sombrero over his long black curls, wrapped in costly furs, smoking his big cigar of the Havana. By his side, La Svengali, also in sables, with a large black velvet hat on, her light brown hair done up in a huge knot on the nape of her neck. She was rouged and pearl powdered, and her eyes were blackened beneath, and thus made to look twice their size. But in spite of all such disfigurements, she was a most splendid vision, and caused quite a little sensation in the crowd as she came slowly by. Little Billy's heart was in his mouth. He caught Svengali's eye, and saw him speak to her. She turned her head and looked at him standing there. They both did. Little Billy bowed. She stared at him with a cold stare of disdain, and cut him dead. So did Swengali. And as they passed, he heard them both snigger. She with a little high-pitched flippant snigger, worthy of a London barmaid. Little Billy was utterly crushed, and everything seemed turning around. The Laird and Taffy had seen it all without losing a detail. The Spengalis had not even looked their way the laird said. It's not Trilby, I swear. She could never have done that. It's not in her. And it's another face altogether, I'm sure of it. Taffy was also staggered and in doubt. They caught hold of little Billy, each by an arm, and walked him off to the boulevards. He was quite demoralized, and wanted not to dine at Basfi. He wanted to go straight home at once. He longed for his mother as he used to long for her, when he was in trouble as a small boy, and she was away from home, longed for her desperately, to hug her and hold her and fondle her and be fondled for his own sake and hers. All his old love for her had come back in full, with what arrears! All his old love for his sister, for his old home. When they went back to the hotel to dress, for Dodo had begged them to put on their best evening war-paint, so as to impress his future mother-in-law, Little Billy became fractious and intractable, and it was only on Taffy's promising that he would go all the way to Devonshire with him on the morrow, and stay with him there, that he could be got to dress and dine. The huge Taffy lived entirely by his affections, and he hadn't many to live by—the Laird, Trilby, and Little Billy. Trilby was unattainable. The Laird was quite strong and independent enough to get on by himself— and Taffy had concentrated all his faculties of protection and affection on little Billy, and was equal to any burden or responsibility all this instinctive young fathering might involve. In the first place little Billy had always been able to do it quite easily, and better than any else in the world, the very things Taffy most longed to do himself and couldn't, and this inspired the good Taffy with a chronic reverence and wonder he could not have expressed in words. Then little Billy was physically small and weak, and incapable of self-control. Then he was generous, amiable, affectionate, transparent as crystal, without an atom of either egotism or conceit, and had a gift of amusing you and interesting you by his talk, and its complete sincerity, that never palled. And even his silence was charming. One felt so sure of him, There was hardly any sacrifice, little or big, that Big Taffy was not ready and glad to make for little Billy. On the other hand, there lay deep down under Taffy's surface irascibility and earnestness about trifles, and beneath his harmless vanity of the strong man, a long-suffering patience, a real humility, a robustness of judgment, a sincerity and all-roundness, a completeness of sympathy, that made him very good to trust and safe to lean upon. Then his powerful and impressive aspect, his great stature, the gladiator-like poise of his small round head on his big neck and shoulders, his huge deltoids and deep chest and slender loins, his clean-cut ankles and wrists, all the long and bold and highly finished athletic shapes of him, that easy grace of strength that made all his movements a pleasure to watch, and any garment look well when he wore it. All this was a perpetual feast to the quick, prehensile, aesthetic eye. And then he had such a solemn, earnest, lovable way of bending pokers round his neck, and breaking them on his arm, and jumping his own height, or near it, and lifting up armchairs by one leg with one hand, and what not else? So that there was hardly any sacrifice, little or big, that little Billy would not accept from Big Taffy as a mere matter, of course a fitting and proper tribute rendered by bodily strength to genius. Par nobile fratrum. Well met and well mated for fast and long-enduring friendship. The family banquet at Monsieur Pasfi's would have been dull, but for the irrepressible Dodore, and still more for the laird of Cockpen, who rose to the occasion and surpassed himself in geniality, drollery and eccentricity of French grammar and accent. Monsieur Pasfi was also a droll in his own way, and had the quickly familiar jocose facetiousness that seems to belong to the successful middle aged bourgeois all over the world when he's not pompous instead he can even be both sometimes Madame Pasfi was not jocose she was much impressed by the aristocratic splendor of Taffy the romantic melancholy and refinement of little Billy and their quiet and dignified politeness she always spoke of dodo as Monsieur de la Farce though the rest of the family and one or two friends who had been invited, always called him Monsieur Theodore, and he was officially known as Monsieur Rigolo. Whenever Madame Pasfi addressed him or spoke of him in this aristocratic manner, which happened very often, Theodore would wink at his friends with his tongue in his cheek. It seemed to amuse him beyond measure. Mademoiselle Ernestine was evidently much too in love to say anything, and seldom took her eyes off Monsieur Theodore whom she had never seen in evening dress before, it must be owned that he looked very nice, more ducal than even Zuzu, and to be Madame de la Farce en perspective, and the future owner of such a brilliant husband as Dodo, was enough to turn a stronger little bourgeois head than Mademoiselle Ernestine's. She was not beautiful, but healthy, well-grown, well-brought-up, and presumably of a sweet, kind, and amiable disposition, an ingenue fresh from her convent. Innocent as a child, no doubt, and it was felt that Dodo had done better for himself and for his race than Monsieur le Duc. Little Dodos need have no fear. End of part one, part seventh. Recording by Stella Jobson, Rome, Italy.